So you were saying there's math involved with setting up? Yeah, that's my job. My job is the math. So... Well, I have I have a lot of jobs in the day. So when we're when we're talking about concerts specifically and rigging setting up in arenas, when you walk into the stadium for a show, you bought tickets, you sit down, you see the stage, you see stuff on the stage, you see instruments and band members or but hanging from the ceiling, you'll see especially nowadays, you see big speaker stacks, lots of cabinets hanging down, lights, trusses, video walls, curtains, drapes, all of that needs to hang from the ceiling. So when the tour comes in and says, here's our plot, this is what we need. We need this many lights here, 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 and here. They put the marks on the floor and they walk away. And then it's my job to figure out how to get those things there. So we hang what's called a bridle. So we use steel aircraft cable and we go because the... The, there's only so many structural beams in the building. And so the the beams in our building are very far apart. They're 40 feet, give or take, apart. So I've got to triangulate from the beams, say, okay, so this point is, or the, what they need, this lighting truss or this speaker stack or whatever, it's, it's nine foot six and a half inches away from the beam. So I've got to triangulate how to hang it safely depending on the amount of weight that's on it, use what lengths of steel cable to get it hanging exactly right there so we can put a chain hoist on it to pick up the truss. Now do that, well, for example, this last show that we did, AEW was wrestling, uh, do that 95 times. So it's a lot of really quick math for me to try to get that done first thing so that we can get a crew of guys up in the ceiling climbing around, attaching it all to the beams. We pull it up with ropes, attach it to the beams, and then the chain hoist runs up what we attach, carrying all the weight. So, yeah, it's a lot of math, man. <laughs> it's a lot. But that's it's my job as the head rigger. It's my job to work with the tour, and and then I make sure that everything is structurally able to take all the weight. So for these bigger shows, like... Well, the biggest show that we've hung is Metallica. You're talking about 250,000 pounds that we've got to hang from the ceiling. So it's you got to make sure that the building's strong enough and then you can't pull too hard on one beam one direction without pulling on that beam the other direction to compensate, right? So it's a lot of math, but it's a lot of fun too. It's a great time. We, we like it. We like oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you manage all of that? So for the math part of it, I have a bunch of cheat sheets already like um, with with basic measurements. Um, and so I'll have, for example, I have a couple measurements for every one foot increment ready to go. And then so I just when when, when I look at the marks on the floor, I I look at my cheat sheet and say, OK, and then. I can add or take away from that little bits at a time, close enough, that kind of thing. What do you need to add and take away? Um, so we use what's called deck chain. So there's aircraft cable, and and then at the end of the aircraft cable, uh, we use it's a deck chain. So it's each chain link is about four inches long, and so that's our adjustability. So at the end of the bridle on the longer leg, 
I've got a 10 link deck chain that I can use, take away links, add links, and then that'll move, that'll shift the point, you know, within about a couple of feet either way of the, the basic measurement. So I use my cheat sheets and try to get everything within four inches of wherever they put it on the floor. So for me to run around and do the math, it takes me about an hour to do 80 points. For example, my friend Dave, he new guy that I'm just training up to do my job, it would take him about two hours right now to do all all of that, but he's getting he's getting better. So after you do it for a decade, you know, you're gonna be a little quicker. Yeah. So what do you have to take into account when you're hanging these then? What kind of structural steel is up top? What's in the way? How high does the show need this? Because if it's a, you know, our building's quite short. So we have, uh, think of like big triangles for the beams up in the air. So the, the top of the triangle is the high steel that's right at the ceiling. And then there's a catwalk below it about 25 feet. And so the high steel is 77 feet in the air and the low steel is 51 most shows want to hang everything at about 70 feet so it's way way up as high as we can so our building is quite short a lot of the new shows the new stadiums they all get built at 100 feet so that they can hang their show at 90 they want to hang it way way up and so we are we are at a disadvantage there but our building is uh, in the city is very strong it's very over engineered for snow load so we're lucky enough because we can take all the weight that they can throw at us. There's no tour in North America right now that we can't hang weight-wise. So we're lucky there. Yeah, they just built it strong as hell back in 89 is when that <laughs> building was built. So they just they just over-engineered the hell out of it to take a lot of weight. But did they have to sacrifice height to do that? Uh, I don't know if they needed to sacrifice height at that time. I think that just back in the 80s, um, there was no need to build higher. They didn't need to build taller back then. There was, it wasn't very common to be hanging stuff from the ceiling. A lot of concerts were ground up, so they'd put everything on the stage or in front of the stage, big audio towers, rather than hanging it from the ceiling. They just have it standing up from the ground. Well, so they've transitioned now where things are hanging all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it's if it's up in the air, it's out of the way. It leaves better. You, then your audience isn't looking through audio stacks and video stacks trying to see the stage. Everything's up out of the way, so everybody gets a clear view of the stage. Oh, so everything's actually pretty hidden then. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Most shows it is. Yeah, all the audio's up in the air, so unless you look up, you don't see it. You All you see is clean view all the way to the stage. So no cables. Shouldn't be. Very rare. On the smaller shows, yeah. The, on the smaller shows, they don't have the budget to hide all the cables, so we'll hang all the audio and stuff, But and they'll bring all the cables to one point, but the cables will be going down. So if you're out on the far side wings, then you'll probably be looking through cables to see the drummer, for example, or or maybe somebody at the back of the stage. But they, they do their best, but with lower budget, you just don't have the money to be doing extra steps to hide everything oh so what do you need the money for to hide it more bridles more motors more sorry chain hoists uh more truss more 
time like it all of that stuff it takes up more room in the truck so maybe then they would need an extra semi so most small tours you're talking about two or three semis just for the whole show so if you start adding another case of motors and another case of steel and another like that all adds up so quick that all of a sudden they would need another semi and if they don't have a huge budget they can't just have another full truck Oh man, that's so, a big limiting factor then. Very the small ones. Yeah, for the ver- for the smaller shows, definitely it's. But like, if it's a rock show, people expect to be looking through a cable. They don't really mind. Yeah. So what are these motors you're talking about? So so when I when we hang a bridle at the apex of the bridle, where the bridle from one beam and the other beam they come down and they meet in the middle, it's called the apex. And hanging off of that is a is a hook and a chain going down to the floor. And then there's a chain hoist at the bottom of it that runs up and down the chain, picking up truss or speakers or lights or whatever. So the chain hoist motor, it it runs up and down, picking everything up. So we pull up the empty chain because we just wouldn't be able to handle pulling up the truss or the right because it's we're talking about thousands and thousands of pounds so we pull up the empty chain and then the chain hoists do the lifting for us afterwards and they can bring it up to whatever height they want and and then it moves during a lot of it moves during the show and and uh maybe there's underhung automation motors or there's all kinds of stuff there man it's super fun (laughs) yeah Yeah. so then this bridle you're talking about what's it made out of Aircraft cable, so three eighths inch aircraft cable. Okay, so that's the standard for what we use for ninety nine percent. There's a few, there's a few points usually per show where it's uh where we use half inch steel, but mostly it's all three eighths inch aircraft cable, which is very strong. It's got a tensile strength of eighteen thousand pounds, no, fourteen, fourteen to sixteen thousand pounds. So, and I never put more than 2,500 pounds of tension on it. Oh, so you got a big margin of error then. Yeah, 5 to 1 working load limit to tensile strength. And even after the, the, and that's just manufacturer tensile strength, right? When I've done a pull test, I was down in the States at one point doing a course called the Rigstar program. And uh, this is not a lot of rigging programs in Canada. So I went down to Northampton, Massachusetts and took this course and he had a big pull tester, which is just basically a gigantic machine with a screw in it. And you can just, you can pull pull apart anything you want. <laughs> yeah, He can put 250,000 pounds of force onto something with that machine. So he's like, we're going to make some aircraft cable stuff that you use for your ring. We're going to build some and tear it to destruction. We're going to make some span sets, which is like a... It's like a think of like a climbing sling, but thicker. So it's it's the same kind of material, but instead of one wrap or one weave, it's like thirty wraps oh. or thirty weaves. So but it's, it's still flat though. It can be, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So it's got a it's got a sheath on it. So it's it's basically just thin poly or nylon r- rope, like flat rope, and then it just does about twenty four laps around whatever length you want, and then they just put a sheath on it. And so when you press on it, it does go flat, uh, but its natural shape is like a bundle, right? So it's, it's, it's pretty thin, though. And so we made some of those and broke them to destruction. Those are super strong, too. They took, 
I think they finally broke it like 20,000 pounds. So, and they explode. Those ones, they explode when they destruct. They go right through the sheath too. They explode through the sheath. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How far did things fly? On those ones, that was more of a, it was more of an explosion of dust and fiber because the fibers of the, of like the strands blew up. So, so the, the fibers just like a big dust cloud. Whereas when the steel ones that we set, when they broke, then yeah, shrapnel was flying. He, he's got a, like a bulletproof glass cage around it so that nothing can come at you type thing. But yeah, stuff was bouncing around like a pinball in there. So it was super fun to do the, that was the best part of the course. The course itself was really long hours and kind of boring. But afterwards, when we got to start pulling stuff apart and breaking things, then yeah, of course, it's going to be a little bit more fun. Yeah, you get to see it applied. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So seeing how something acts at its limit gives me a better idea of when I'm now when I'm at the arena and, and a tour comes through with their steel package and I'm looking at the steel, I can tell if something's been stretched too much because I know what it looks like through the whole process of its destruction. So if something's stretched, I can tell if it's been overloaded and then I can pull that off to the side and flag it out and let the tour know, hey, this is garbage. Oh, so, so you're inspecting the equipment they bring in too. Yeah. Yeah. So they, every tour comes with their own uh, rigging steel because every tour is so different. We would not be able to locally house what they need. So they bring their own package of, of, of cable and deck chain and truss and everything. They bring their own package and then uh, we supplement them if they don't bring enough through local providers. How does it work when you're talking to the, the tour about when their equipment is faulty? Mm. So most tours come with their own rigger. And then I work as the local head rigger. I work with their rigger. And if any equipment that they bring is faulty or needs to be taped out, I bring it to them with, it, with some tape on it. And I ask them what they want to do with it. Nine times out of ten, they say, get rid of it for me. I don't want to see it ever again, right? Don't throw it in a garbage can because somebody's going to go and see it, pull it out of that garbage can. It's going to end up back in my case. So they usually ask me to dispose of it, and I just usually take it out to my vehicle right there, get oh, rid of it. Got to get it out of sight, out of mind. Yep. No accidents. Yep. So nobody accidentally grabs it and brings it back into the kit or takes it home and uses it. Right, yeah. So how safety-minded is everybody on the crew? The touring crew is usually pretty good, but much like much like everything else, it's case dependent. Some shows, they don't care. Like a circus, for example, a small-time circus, things are real sketchy, real sketchy. I've had a few very, very close calls in the uh, just in the building here. And I run things very safe now, especially. For our side of things, I have no problem saying no, we're not doing that. Sorry. And if you want to cancel the show, then cancel the show. We we can't do it. I've had to put my foot down a few times, but it's it's pretty rare. Most most tours are very easy to work with there where they get it. Have you always been able to put your foot down in that way? All I can say is we're not doing it. If you guys want to do it yourself, 
so be it. And some tours, uh, if they've got, if they're real stick in the mud type, and they're fine, I'll do it myself. Then they go and hang the stuff themselves. Sure, fine, but my guys aren't doing it. Sorry. So we've had that happen a few times. It's rare. It's rare that I have to put my foot down, and it's even more rare that when I do put my foot down that the tour disregards that. They typically listen to their local rigor because I know the building limits. Yeah. I know I know the limits better than they do because it's their first time there. It's kind of my job to it's know the limits. It's my job, exactly. So what's an example of a close call? Oh, uh there was, was it an Almond Brothers circus? I forget. It was a number, it was a few years ago now. This small time circus came through and they wanted to hang. It's almost like a, a little miniature roller coaster. It's a circle truss. It's a track that's in a circle and they have a motorcycle that runs around on the track in tight little circles. And so there's a, one person on the motorcycle and then there's an, there's a, a lady performer doing like a trapeze thing off the bottom of this rig. So they wanted to hang it off of one of the beams and that's fine. We hung that. But then in order to stabilize it, because the motorcycle's going in circles around this little donut, so it's going to be wobbling a whole bunch. So in order to stabilize it, they, they had a bunch of uh, come-alongs, which is basically just a large cable ratchet strap. And, and so they would anchor it to what I thought was going to be something solid, maybe some concrete blocks. He brings some cement blocks in and anchor it to that. They decided to anchor it off of the aluminum cup holders of the seats on the, on the first few levels. Like it's, and you're talking about a motorcycle plus truss plus two bodies, all dynamic forces. And you're going to tie the whole thing to an aluminum cup holder of a seat that's not bolted down. It's meant to take the weight of a a drink, not a motorcycle. <laughs> and so when I came into the arena to spotlight for that show and I came out onto the floor and I saw this, and I told them, and and this is at doors. This is at it's like it's showtime. And I said, you guys, this is not okay. This is not going to hold. It's not safe. Somebody's going to die. Because up there, they don't wear harnesses or anything. So they're doing this trapeze type stuff, 35 feet off the ground. No harness, no safety, right? Because it's a circus. And and they've got it all rigged off of these little cup holders. I'm going, you guys, no, it's not okay. It's not okay. And they lost it. And they They would not listen to me. They refused to take any advice. They said, go away. You don't know what you're talking about. This is fine, X, Y, Z. And I voiced my concern, and I told the building, and I told I told everybody that needed to know. and said, there's nothing else I can do, though, right? They want to keep going with the show. It's their show. So I had to walk away. And only one of them blew. One of them blew throughout the show, but... Well, one's more than zero yeah <laughs> it was so scary dude yeah. it was so scary oh, i was i was running spotlight for that show and the whole time i'm up there i was so convinced i was about to watch somebody die and you was, broadcasted it to everybody to everybody knew and yeah. the performers knew well i had to my hands are tied if i walk in there i know better 
So if I walk in there as the head and I see it and don't say anything and something happens, it could come back to me, right? Yeah, that's just negligence there. Right. So because I saw it, I've got to say something. Had to make a big stink of it. They were all so furious. And then at the end, after I don't feel it's a big stink if somebody could die. Right. Yeah, let them know. They, this is not secure. It looks like it's metal. It's barely metal. It's a, <laughs> it's a cup holder. It's not an anchor. Don't use this. And they, you know, they all refused to listen. And then after the show, they, they made a point of coming and gloating about it. Oh, look, no, nothing happened. I told you. I'm like, one of them broke. What happened if the second one broke? Then the thing's tipping on its side. Then what? Yeah, different attitudes. Very, very. So some shows are very sketchy like that, but you would never see that kind of safety compromise on like a Cirque du Soleil or a bigger show like a Metallica or something like that. Yeah. It's always... As you're coming up, trying to establish yourself, maybe you're making those budget cuts. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a lot of smaller shows, it's very wild west attitudes still where you just do whatever you want and let's go rock and roll show's got to go on (laughs) who regulates this that's a great question a lot of tours have their own regulation they come with their own engineers they come with their own approval and safety with their own production companies i don't think that that's a requirement so there's a lot that's still covered just underneath the carney act so you can get away with a lot in that in that industry. What's the Carney Act? It is the so when you've got the OHS regulations for certain jobs, for example, like in America it's OSHA. And so the different regulations in there, my understanding of it is the different regulations in there are different acts. And so the Carney Act would pertain to specifically carnival and the entertainment. Okay, so then probably because they have better insurance or something, they can rig it a little more cowboy? It might be the opposite. So because <laughs> because carnivals and circuses and stuff always have been traveling 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 shit shows, for lack of a better word, they they get a lot more grace with certain things. For example, working out of country getting somebody to get a working visa or permit in another country is a lot easier when you have strings to pull as a production tour that's touring the world. In my field, it'd be really easy for me to get permission to work in other countries because all the tour, like tours have a lot of pull in regards to that. And I think because of the Carney Act. Oh, I gotcha. Gives them a little bit more leeway in many regards, but also allows them to skirt safety because it's kind of old school, Wild West established stuff where maybe safety isn't the priority. Nowadays, safety is a way higher priority, but it's in a lot of places and for a lot of shows, it's still very outdated. Even here in Saskatoon, when I started doing this gig, not that harnesses were not common, but they it was it was it was optional. So being up there, you could there were okay, for example, there was one guy specifically, no shoes, no shirt. So he's bare barefoot, bare back, no harness. 70 feet off the ground, 
hanging points off the beams. And he would just wrap a leg around a beam or sit in. He would make a basket, which is the, the end of the bridle. He would build one bridle and then sit on that to build the next one. And that's not that long ago. That's 15 years ago. So that's not even that long ago. Canada's behind, especially Saskatchewan, very behind, very Wild West on when it comes to safety stuff. Nowadays, we're catching up, but it's been a long, hard fight. <laughs> Whatever happened to this guy? He still does entertainment stuff, but I don't know if he does any rigging anymore. I know he was working at a different venue in town, and I just don't, I don't know. He might be retired now. <laughs> still alive though okay all right yeah never fell maybe he's even safer because Mm. he doesn't harness up Mm -hmm. because he's more (laughs) (laughs) i suppose possible (laughs) but so when we came along we were using our rock climbing harnesses and a lot of the guys on that crew were like oh that's pretty slick because we can use a sling go around something back to ourselves and we can be hands-free so we have full work positioning attachments and now we can be hands-free to do our job with both hands and a lot of the people on the crew maybe not majority but a lot of them looked at us and went well that's pretty slick you can use both hands to do your job and we i was so baffled that this wasn't a standard practice. And nowadays you go in there and rock climbing harnesses, you'd get thrown out immediately anywhere in the country. Not like that's not, you need a five point harness. You have to have class three, everything for CSA. What's a five point harness? So five point harness has shoulder straps where a rock climbing harness is technically a three point harness. So it's got each leg and a waist and uh, the five point harness, the difference is the shoulder straps. So nowadays, a Um, A class three harness has to have a dorsal D-ring, which is an attachment point on your back in between your shoulder blades. Um, So it has to, you have to have shoulder straps on, on your harness in order to work. In the OH&S regulations, class three harness is with a dorsal D-ring, five point harness with a dorsal D-ring. And a class three helmet has to have a suspension system in the helmet of some kind so that it can protect against falling debris. Absorb some of that impact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you were saying you were running spotlight? So what is that? Most concerts have spotlights on the band throughout the show. So they'll have lights and stuff on their trusses, but quite often they'll want some spotlights at the back of the building on the performer, following the performer around. So when the performer's walking back and forth or running up and into the audience and whatever, they we can have him lit up or or her lit up. And they don't have to try to figure that out with the trusses, with the lights on the truss. And that way they just have spotlight operators in the building, easy point and shoot, big bright lights then are so hot they're so hot to operate and they're very hot to have flashing at you if you're ever seeing a performer on the stage and there's four spotlights on them you know that that performer is sweating because they're just getting suntanned on there (laughs) you're cooking that person yeah they melt you into the stage they are hot even from 400 feet away you it feels like the sun really yeah it's hot they're hot you need an operator for each spotlight yeah if it's moving right so a lot of newer spotlights, for example, uh, um, or newer tours, the spotlights are typically up in the ceiling. So in our building, we have eight spotlights up in the ceiling. And so most tours would you grab four. Four operators, one on one on each 
of the furthest away spotlights. And then throughout the show, the spotlight operators are on a headset with the lighting director. And that's the person that's changing all the lights every every few seconds in the song, running different lighting programs, maybe the video, maybe like they're they're the busiest people during the show is the lighting director. And so they're also on headset with the spotlight operators, calling them in and out, saying spots one and two, two second fade in, go. And then maybe the spotlights have different colors in them that are called gels. So they'll say, you know, one six gel combo because one is yellow and six is purple. And so they want in between, they want a red color. So they go one and six. There you go. Now you've got red. And away you go. Who's so, changing these gels? So the operators themselves would 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 have six up to six gels in the spotlight that they'd be flipping back and forth, and then turning the spotlights on and off. Oh, remotely? Uh, no, at the on the machine. So there's 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 different levers on the machine to uh, on the spotlight itself to insert gels, and it's basically just it pushes the gel in front of the beam of light of it. So if you're operating that spotlight, you're operating the gels, you're yep. moving it around yep. and you're listening to the calls from right. the lighting director. Yeah. Yeah. So the lighting director, the LD would say, um, if I'm spot one, go spot one in a frame two, four combo on the guitarist and go fade in, go. And so I would then fade in on the guitarist and hopefully from 400 feet away, my aim is pretty good. So I'm not way out in the audience. And then, and then just the spotlight's freaking out, trying to get back to the guitarist. Hopefully I'm pretty close. Get onto my guy, follow him around until the end of the song. And then, or until he walks off stage, or if there's you know, a cool blackout effect or something where the LD goes in, oh, fade out, go, or blackout, go. So there's different calls for the different operators. And that LD would have sometimes up to eight spotlight operators that he's calling every one of them. Plus, he's running the entire lighting show all by himself or herself. One, one person? One person. Making all the verbal calls to all the spotlights. Yes. Plus running all the lights on all the trusses. So for example, the most impressive lighting director that I've ever had the pleasure of working with is this lovely lady and she works for the band Styx. And she's old school, so she doesn't use a lot of moving lights. She likes the older, they're called parkans, so they're fixed position lights. So she'll have four lighting trusses. So big trusses from edge, from like across the whole stage. And we hang those trusses in the air and each truss has about 50 lights on it so she's got 200 ish lights at her fingertips and so she's operating all of those lights in different patterns and colors and combinations throughout the show to give all the lighting effects for the song plus she's calling non-stop cues for four spotlight operators plus She's trying to work with the audio and video people and taking over their stuff if, they, if she needs to as well. She's the most impressive person that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. She's insane and nonstop talking. Like she doesn't get a break throughout the whole show. Then she's calling multiple people in. So she'll say spots two and four in a frame one on, on your guy, spots three and one on this guy with this combination and go and fade out go and meanwhile her fingers are just flying up these 
switchboards, turning on lights and turning off lights, all to the beat. So it's crazy. It's the the amount of multitasking required for that job is so far beyond me. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of coordination. It is. And if you mess up, it's everybody knows. Yeah, the lighting is the most <laughs> visible thing, right? Yeah. If the audio messes up, well, it depends on the if they don't turn the microphone on, then that's obvious. Yeah. But if you accidentally turn the lights off instead of on or <laughs> yeah. or you've got one that's bright green instead of red it's really obvious yeah visually what's this frame two you're talking about oh so that would that's just an example of which gels you'd be using so they're also called frames okay i gotcha yeah so on the spotlights themselves so they'd call out the frames or the gels and Mm -hmm. then they would call out the person that you'd be yeah putting that on right yeah yeah so they would call out you know, which which jails or frames that you, they want you in, how big they want your shot to be. Maybe they want you in a head to toe. Maybe they want you in head to knee for your beam of light. Maybe they want you to cut in the sides so that it's not a circle, so that it's so you cut the sides in so that it doesn't accidentally pick up half of the performer next to them. You don't want to pick up half of a performer with the light, especially if it's supposed to be dark. Then you just see half of a guitarist on the stage. It doesn't look very good. So... They'll tell you all of those things in one cue, and they're trying to juggle all four, sometimes up to eight spot ops at the same time with those cues. Plus, they're running the whole lighting show. Yeah, That's high-end communication. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's insane. So you can control the light color, the light intensity, as well as the height and width. Yeah, you get a lot of control in that way. And it's, it's very... Those spotlights are pretty low-tech because it's just... Think of just like a piece of paper cutting in from the side of the beam casting a shadow right so it's it's not complicated stuff you're putting a a piece of colored paper in front of the light to change the color and you're bringing in a metal shutter from the side like a curtain to cut the side of it like it's not high tech compared to new spotlights which a lot of tours are going with where they're going with remote controls so all of the lights on the trusses that are that can move and do way more than the spotlights up in the ceiling of the building that are 20 years old can do and they tie them all to a mouse or a joystick or a you know uh, an electric spotlight and then they don't have to have any spotlight operators up in the air they can be backstage in a dark corner operating however many lights you want them to with their fingertips so, so that's one kind person's of, just right. So that's kind of the new style where all the lights on all the trusses are are connected into the system, and then the spotlight operator just uses whatever controls, like a a mouse, for example, and they just use their mouse and they just keep pointed at their guy, and then the lighting director doesn't have to make any calls to them. They just turn on any light at any time on any truss so any light in the building they they turn it on so you can have all the lights on none of them one of them back of them front they don't have to talk to the operator at all the operator just stays pointed at their guy and the lighting director turns on whatever lights that they want so that's kind of the new style where now spotlight operators up in the air are starting to phase out a bit in the industry and it's it's so much easier to have somebody sitting backstage with a mouse 
than to have to call them every two seconds on different things and get them to do the operating. Yeah, and you're not up there cooking yourself either. Right. What's the longest show you've had to spotlight for? Uh, something like CCMAs, Canadian Country Music Awards, that the show itself might not be very long, but we do about three days of rehearsals. So you're talking about like 15-hour days of sitting in front of a hot spotlight waiting to get called in and then some days you just don't you just sit there for 15 hours waiting <laughs> it's the, those are long days those what do you do to days. maintain your focus uh for that one specifically that was a truss spot so we're not up in the ceiling at the spotlights we're literally sitting on a truss and they hoist us up to height so we can't even go anywhere or walk around you just sit there and wait for your next break basically so, so that, no bathroom. Well, you get you get bathroom breaks if you need to, right? I mean, they can't keep you up there, but but also, it's you're expected to go long periods for yeah. sure. Yeah. So then you're suspended between those two forty foot. Yeah. Yeah. So you're hanging off of a bridle. So the bridle, the bridles come down, pick up the truss. You're sitting on the truss with your spotlights, and usually it's pretty comfy bucket seats on the truss but you're still sitting you don't get to stand up or walk around or whatever and you're harnessed into the truss so you just sit there in the nice comfy seat with your spotlight and wait to get called in you're just maybe 30 feet off the ground it's the best seat in the house don't get me wrong <laughs> during concerts it's the best seat in the house <laughs> but for the longer events like the televised events it's it's a lot of hours it gets boring real quick oh <laughs> So then it starts on the ground. They strap you in. Yeah. Well, usually. Okay. And then you start getting hoisted up from the ground. Normally, that's how it would go. Uh, on other shows, like Red Hot Chili Peppers, for example, that was my first truss spotlight call ever. They trimmed the truss, which is they, they, uh, they had it all set and perfectly programmed so they don't want to move the truss at all because if they change the height then the moving lights on the truss will then not be on their correct positions because right? they programmed everything it's all programmed so if it, if the truss is all of a sudden a foot lower than what they want than what it was when you so if they come down and pick us up and then go back up but they're a foot away from where they were then now all the lights are going to miss by a foot which can make a big difference when you're throwing light 80 feet. If you're a higher by a foot, now that light totally misses. What they would do in that case is they would hang a rope ladder off of the truss. And so the operators like myself, after the opening band finishes up and before the main band, the Chili Peppers, comes out onto the stage, we come out and we climb up the rope ladder 40 feet up onto the truss in front of the audience and they're all screaming at us. And we climb this sketchy rope ladder. I mean, we're tied in with a fall arrest system, but the rope ladders, it's a rope ladder. It's not the easiest thing to climb. So you climb up, get into our bucket seats, pull the rope ladder up onto the truss so that it's all hidden and tied up. And then uh, and then we sit up there and run the spotlights for the show from there. Yeah. So you're harnessed up, though, when you're going on. Yeah. And yeah. that they, it keeps taking up the slack? or what? Yeah. So it's a it's a... It's a retractable fall arrester, so we would have hung that fall arrest on a bridle that morning, and then, so the fall arrest would be sitting up at about 60 feet, 
And so we pull down the the clip and we clip in and then we're climbing the ladder. It'll catch us if we fall, and but it slow also down your descent. Well, no, it it would hard lock. Oh, they it hard locks. Yeah, so it would hard lock if we fell and it would it would arrest. It would f- full arrest, but it it also has tension in it where it will it'll take up the slack for us as we go. Does it give you a little boost to get up? No, no. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't pull more than maybe a, a, a 2 pounds of help. Oh man. Type thing. <laughs> just enough that it's constantly just it, it pulls the shoulder straps of your harness up into your into the back of your head. It's just so annoying. <laughs> just just enough to know it's there. Just enough to piss you off. <laughs> yeah. So how do you handle being up on the heights and everything? So ever since well, ever since you got me into rock climbing way back in the day, heights has been a lot less of a problem for me, right? <laughs> Everybody, and so for those that say there's, that they don't have a fear of heights or everybody has a fear of heights. It's what level and how you can manage, how, what's your fear management like type thing, right? And some people have more of a fear of heights than others. For me, I've mitigated that fear enough from exposure therapy uh, that it doesn't bother me to be up high. I still have that healthy fear that keeps me safe. So then what's the worst aspect of the job? The worst aspect of the job, the biggest risk of the job is that there's so many people around doing so many things. So it's chaos. The risk of getting crushed by something or getting pushed off of the stage or pushed underneath of something that's moving or like that risk is probably the biggest risk as far as the climbing especially nowadays in our building it's quite safe you're always tied into something you're always tied into the ceiling somehow so the risk of falling you'd have to have first you'd have to fall over the handrails of the catwalk that you're on then your gear would have to fail for you to come down and injure yourself or hit the, like, there's so many factors there that aren't going to happen because it's all rated for 5,000 pounds or more. You can hang a truck off of what you're clipped to. And so that, that part is what everybody thinks is the riskiest part, but that's probably the safest part in the building because you're by yourself up there when you're, when you're climbing around in the ceiling, there's not many people around. It's you. So there's not many factors of, hey, that forklift's going to run you over. Hey, this staging is going to crush you. Hey, this group of people that's pushing this heavy cart that doesn't see you is going to run you over with it or knock you off the stage. Or So the accidents that happen are usually on the ground, and it's normally just because there's so many bodies around. What's the biggest accident you witnessed? Nothing major in the arena. Injury-wise... A few broken bones, broken leg, somebody lost a finger, concussion, somebody lost a few teeth, nobody, oh, a couple of seizures. Actually, that's that was kind of a common thing for a few years. All of a sudden, there'd be, because when, when, the, when the lighting people get their lights in the air, they immediately want to start testing. And so how do you test? By turning on the show program. And so all of a sudden, the people that lied about being photosensitive start having a seizure because they wanted to come to work that day and they didn't think that the seizure was going to be an issue and then pretty soon you see them fall off the stage and they're having a seizure on the floor so that 
that happens. What do you do when that happens? So there's always first aid supplied by the building. And then plus my rigging crew is full of firefighters and paramedics. So they all. Yeah, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So in the event of an accident, it's rare for us to have to call. Uh, for an ambulance or for a fire truck, it's we we can normally deal with pretty much everything in house unless they've got to go to the hospital. Nice. So you feel pretty safe around these guys then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My crew is phenomenal. Been, been, it's a it's a it's a pleasure to work with them. They're all uh, very talented, and they they all whoa, have whoa, different jobs. They're not talented, skilled. They're very skilled because you talent means you discounted the work they put in. Oh, really? I'd oh so. yeah, yeah, yeah! Like, uh, like talent is in, um, like they just natu- showed up. Natural born. Yeah, they showed yeah, up and it worked. They're very skilled. I like that. Yeah, very skilled. That's yeah. a way better way of putting it. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. No, all good. They earned it for <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best show you've set up for then? Oh, that's a tough one. I've definitely gotten to see a lot of the like bits and pieces of behind the scenes of a lot of tours and a lot of like show business stuff. So some people come through and you see how terrible of a human being they are. And other people come through and you go, I didn't expect this, but this person is phenomenally awesome. Just top tier. So best tour that I've worked for, if I'm being honest, probably share. Share of all the people that are still touring, she is the best of the best. When she, when it comes to my job as, as a head rigger, if I were to go on tour, the number one best person in the industry, in the world, to work for at, at, in my job would be Cher. She is so hardworking and caring and considerate. She's so kind. For example, the last time she came through, the head rigger for that show, I had been in email communication with talking about the show, figuring out like he's, they send me the plot ahead of time and I take a look at it and make sure that it's going to look, oh, it looks okay. See if I see any problems of like, Hey, this is where our big uh, jumbotron is. It's not going to, we're not going to be able to set this up under there. We got to move it, whatever. Right. I, I look at it ahead of time and I discuss with the touring rigger um, problems and we try to figure out how many guys and girls we're going to need. And we discuss like logistically. So I'd been working with this head rigger for weeks on a game plan. So come show day, he's not there. And I go, where's Ricky? What's what, like, what's the deal? I've, I've worked with him a bunch of times. He's through the stadium quite often. He's a great guy. He's one of my favorite head riggers. And where is he? One of the tour people goes, oh, he's not here. What happened? I talked to him four days ago. And they go, well... So Cher found out that it was going to be him and his wife's anniversary this week. And so she surprised him by flying his wife out and meeting him in, where were they the day before? Winnipeg. I think it was in Winnipeg. Uh, flew, flew her out to Winnipeg, surprised him, then flew both of them on a one-week getaway to one of her vacation homes on some island or something right then on top of that because they had they have kids so they needed child care flew their kids to her grandkids to be with her family so that she knew that the kids were taken care of properly during the vacation so flew them to her kids 
But you come stay with the kids, stay with my family, so I know that they're properly taken care of. While with I share's send, family, yeah. So share sends the kids to to share's family. That alone, just the fact that she is so considerate that she she calls all of her people directly too, which is very rare. So she when she's gonna go out on tour, she contacts. She so she finds her rigor goes contacts him directly. She doesn't use an assistant or right. So most. They're too important. They're too. They got too much on the go. They just say, "All right, uh, to my agent, figure it out. Right, get get a crew, get them together, get the band together. Let's go. Right, not share. No, she contacts everybody directly. She's very cool like that. Yeah, she takes care of business though. Oh man, so in it would be a dream to work for Share. She's the best in the business. She is willing to put all the funds necessary into place to make everybody happy. Like nobody gets shorted what they need to get their job done properly. Like if they need another truck because the trucks are just getting packed too full and it's getting annoying to stack the trucks floor to ceiling and it's just not going well, get another truck, even out the load, make it easy. Oh, Do she won't spare any expense. No, no. <laughs> no. So she, wants, she wants everybody to be happy. Yeah, so. so she's happy. Everybody who's working is happy, and they know that she appreciates it. Yeah. She's making that call herself. Yeah, she contacts people directly more than probably, I don't know, probably anybody else in the business at that level. <laughs> it's unreal. Yeah. So she's she'd be the dream to work for. Yeah. What made you get into rigging? Well, actually, so you got me into climbing way back. And then I started working on my exposure therapy because I noticed that I was I was never good at critical thinking. I was never good at critical thinking and decision making under pressure. I would fold under pressure my whole life. I would fold under pressure. So then rock climbing really started getting me into those positions of critical thinking under pressure. It's your life up there. And like there's safety measures in place, sure. But it's... That fear is real. It's real, (laughs) right? It's you're up there. It's you and the rock at height and your belayer. And that's, that's that's the real deal. And so the exposure therapy of making, um, of critical thinking and decision making came... Start. I noticed that I was starting to get better with that, but I was wanting to focus on that. And so one day I'm in the climbing gym And my now boss uh, came through the gym looking for climbers to rig. And uh, I was like, wait, we can get paid to climb? We can get get paid to (laughs) climb in Saskatchewan, the flattest place on earth. I can get paid to climb things? Yeah, I'm in. Put me in. And it was kind of game over after that. Like I just, as soon as I got into that arena and started climbing around in that building, I was in, I fell, I fell in love with that. And then slowly, but surely, you know, people retire. I had a couple of people pass away, whatever happens. Then all of a sudden I'm in the position of head rigor. Somebody needed to fill that void and pick up the slack and take over. So here we are. So you started from the ground up. Yeah. Well, I guess technically I started from, from the ceiling and worked my way down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, all the roles in that industry then because yeah. you started there right yeah what's the best role climber probably a high steel rigger 
High Steel Rigger is my favorite because you get to you get to you show up, rock star, you're the high riggers. Kind of not that there's any elitist mentality, but it's like they they they're rock stars. They're characters. You know, all of them are characters. Just because when you get to the same with you know the extreme jobs tower climbers window washers firefighters that when you whenever you're in the extremes for work you get all the characters oh yeah all the weird beards come out (laughs) so anyway that's my favorite position they show up they go up into the ceiling they climb around they they get some they work hard so they're at height all day fine with it yep yep climbing around in the ceiling all day and then uh once it's hung they get out of there and they come for teardown. So once the show's over, if you if you're at a concert and then the concert ends and the house lights turn on, all the building lights turn on and you look up, they're already up there, right? So they maybe they watch some of the show from up there or whatever. It's it's a cool job yeah. for sure, and it's much less responsibility than my job. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a high steel rigger before, though. Yeah, and I still am. Like I still like this last show that we did, we did Volbeat on Tuesday and uh, we were short on climbers for the day and we were strong on the ground. So Dave, my, my protege as a head rigger, I, I was able to leave him on the floor to do the math stuff and I'm still on radio. So anytime that there's a problem, I'm still available, but then I get to go up and go climb. So I got to climb all day and I was pretty excited about it. <laughs> oh yeah. doesn't happen very often, but every <laughs> once in a while I get to go up there and test my metal and see if i've still got it do you have it i got it man yeah yeah. (laughs) yeah so there's no nerves even with a little bit of time off uh the time off is not as i i had a i mean as you know i i had a brain injury uh from a ground strike from an, I'm an arborist. So from a, from a tree fall, a workplace accident a couple years ago. So working my way back from that has been a long, long road and still is, uh, so nerves from the job itself prior to my accident, not so much. I was very comfortable. So now getting back into it, I still have to be pretty careful, but handling the climbing, it's been going very well. Oh yeah. So what do you have to be careful with? Uh, if, if I sensory input mostly, if I, um, if I have too much sensory input, into my brain then it just kind of starts shutting down and in that state um it's more of like an autopilot where if i and i just don't feel that it's safe if i'm not 100 percent there to be in that dangerous position at height right So, so your brain flips that switch and now you're just doing what you know and you're not taking it any more information. Right. So if I'm just going on instinct or on, you know, muscle memory, I'm sure that I would be fine. But if I'm not there and focused and with it, then I don't let myself go up. So how do you check yourself then? Uh, yeah, the being constantly aware of where my brain's at has been a huge learning curve for the last couple of years. Nowadays, it's just like you take a, it's pattern forming, right? So now it's just subconsciously i'm always hyper aware of what level my brain is at focus wise when i first started i would have no idea i would have no idea how to how to be constantly checking 
where I'm at for my brain. And then I would end up in these positions where I've overdone it. There's too much sensory input. I'm in a grocery store and I'm lost. Grocery stores are the absolute worst for anybody that has sensory input overload sensitivity, like uh, or brain injuries or brain fog. Sleep deprivation. Yeah, all that. Grocery stores are the worst places because your brain is trying to process everything, not just what you're focused on, but all of your... Um, all the peripherals. Peripheral, thank you. All the peripheral vision, everything it's trying to... So when you walk into a grocery store that has the worst lighting of any building you're going to walk into, because it's always just the worst fluorescent lighting, and you stand at an aisle, all the thousands of things on that shelf, you might not be looking at those things, but your brain is, and your brain's trying to process that. And that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's a lot of work. Yeah. So for somebody that's experienced uh, head trauma that has that system and their vestibular system especially has been affected by that trauma then the processing part of that that's normally subconscious and normally doesn't affect people all of a sudden it's a massive load a, vi a visible load on you and you can feel it so back when i first had my injury learning that and then learning how to be aware of that so focusing thinking okay what all's around me how much load is this putting on my brain and then five minutes later all right what all's around me and how much load is this putting on my brain and then five minutes later so you know i would have to set alarms at the beginning hey check yourself hey where's your brain at hey what's your brain at hey what's your brain at and then pattern development soon you know, soon I don't need the alarms. Soon I just need to check myself once a day, once an afternoon, once a week, once a, right? It's just, it's automatic now. So my brain has become hyper aware of the mental load that it's going under. So it'll give me warning signs now of like, hey, this is, this is really expensive on your energy level today. You sure you want to be here? That kind of thing. So when I walk into the grocery store, I can just feel the the load. Like it feels heavy. So then I have to make a decision of how long do I need to be in here? How can I mitigate this? Do I have the afternoon off to nap to recover? Or am I needing to walk out of here right now and get out? Because it's a busy place. So you know how much focus you have left now through constant assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I know how much focus I had. I know what that focus battery level is. Yeah. I'm very hyper aware of it now. And to recharge, you take a nap? Yeah, the only thing that can recharge it is rest and time. Quiet, dark room, sleep. There are some medications and vitamins and nutrients that, that help. For example, nootropics really help. Mushroom blends really help. Lion's mane, things that are good for cognitive function. Certain vitamins. I take copious amounts of vitamins. I mean, you know, you take a lot of vitamins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so same for me where I take, I take high doses of certain vitamins. How is it compared to sleeping? You still need sleep. Yeah. Okay. So sleep's so, top dog. And then you got the other supplements. Yeah. One without the other, not good. Uh, you can sleep all day, but if you don't have the proper nutrients then no matter how much sleep you get, you're still not going to feel great. Likewise, if you don't sleep enough, but you take all the vitamins in the world, you're still not going to feel great. That's an interesting thing about food too, right? Like you consume energy 
No matter how much energy you consume or vitamins you take, you or how still, much training you get, yep, you yeah, still need you to can't sleep. Train it out of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then what was unexpected when you started working rigging? Oh, when I started, it was the wild west. There were, as I said, there were people no shoots, no shirts, no harness. There was also a lot of fights. There was a lot of scrapping. It's rock and roll. Rock and roll in rock and roll, baby. Let's go. There are people screaming down, people threatening up, people throwing stuff, people fighting out in the parking lots. While setting up for a show? Yeah. What? Oh yeah. Yeah. When did you notice it started calming down? Pretty much immediately after I started working there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, party's over. <laughs> no, like we, well, my friends at the climbing gym and I all kind of started around the same time. And once the climbers kind of took over and it wasn't like the old school people that were just ready to scrap because they've been doing it since the 90s and that's just how it is. It just kind of changed. So now, especially, that doesn't happen. There's no fights. There's no, if somebody gets heated, which is, you know, everybody's at a pretty elevated stress level because of the job, if things get heated, people just walk away and I go and deal with it. As the head, it's my job to kind of deal with that. So I separate them, get them, make sure they take breaks, got to make sure that the climber is mentally ready to be climbing and okay to be climbing still. How do you check if somebody's ready to go up high? Uh, usually just a conversation with them. As a rock climber, and it, well, I mean, you know, you 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 know when somebody's not there. You know when somebody shouldn't be driving. If if you have a five minute conversation with somebody, even a two minute conversation with them, you can tell whether or not they should be or shouldn't be doing something dangerous. Yeah, how do you break it to them? I always come at them with with good logic too, where I say, "Hey, man, just had a bit of an a, an episode or." Things are heated. Everybody's pretty elevated right now. We're just going to pull you down. You're not going to climb for a little while, maybe in a little bit. You're still here. You're still getting paid. We've got plenty of other work to do. We're just going to replace you for the moment. And nobody usually questions it. If somebody wants to fight me on it, then, then you know, we have a further discussion with some of the other leads. Well, the, the way that you put it, it's not combative at all. So yeah, <laughs> who wouldn't agree with that? Right. It's not like you're you're still getting paid X, Y, Z, whatever. Take a break. Go take a break right now. Go calm down. And by the time they're back from their break, I've already replaced them. So now you're not needed. You're not needed. We're going to, you can still be here helping out, but now you don't need to get, there's no pressure that you don't. And sometimes they go back up, but other times... It depends on the situation, right? Yeah. Where do you learn how to communicate in that way? Just experience, I guess. Like for yourself, I know that you've always had very good leadership qualities. I've always admired that about you too. It didn't come naturally to me to have strong leadership capability, which is a wonder why I'm in the position that I'm in. As a head, I wanted to have better leadership qualities. So I started putting myself into positions to learn better leadership qualities yeah so you kind of took your time to build that skill yeah so and it was slow so first i would start just by leading the team that i was on so the bridal team to pull up a bridle is there's two climbers two pullers and a ground rigger so the climbers go up to the to the to the ceiling and they they send their ropes in and the ground rigger ties their ropes onto the bridle and the pullers pull it up so there's five people, maybe six if there's two ground riggers, five or six people on that. So first I started by 
leading the bridal team. Then I would lead the bridal team beside me as well. Then I would start leading the whole roof. And then pretty soon I'm leading the ground. And then I'm the head, right? Small so, incremental steps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this actually feels pretty easy for you now because you did it so gradually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the worst kind of show for you to rig for? There's a good question. Of all the worst shows I've rigged, I'd say probably the majority of them are rock shows. Now, there are lots of fantastic rock shows, but there's something about the mentality of a lot of touring production people that when they're on a rock show and they think that they're the touring on the best show in the world, they get pretty high and mighty and pretty difficult to deal with. You don't, you don't ever see that with metal shows. Metal shows, everybody's chill and humble and great, but rock and roll shows can be can be pretty rough people are not easy to work with so but as far as like specific artists we've had a few people come through that that have been pretty done some pretty weird things some people make really weird demands so during the show there's maybe 30 of my local people my that uh, of the company i work for backstage making the show happen so when a performer's walking from their dressing room to the stage, they'll probably have to walk past those 30 people that are too busy working to give a shit about the performer walking to the stage. And sometimes the performer makes all kinds of weird requests. So, for example, Neil Diamond, last time he came through, it was negative 39 degrees. And uh, his security team said, comes up to my team and says we need everybody outside the building while mr diamond walks to the stage and we go there's a whole arena here <laughs> that we can go and walk around a corner because he's coming from stage left to the stage we can go stage right around the corner we'll go hang out over there nope we need we've got an attendance list we need everybody present and it accounted for outside the building no excuses I go, it's minus 40 outside, and you're going to make my crew stand outside in the cold so you don't have to look at them while you walk to the stage? Come on. Really? Like, weird stuff like that gets leaves a bad taste in people's mouths, yeah. <laughs> right? He's letting that superstition kind of control him. Could be. You know, Christina Aguilera was kind of like that, too. She tours with a full framing crew every day, so their job every day is once the show is set up they construct a hallway within the hallway so that she can walk from her dressing room in her own private hallway to the stage without having to look at anybody oh you mean actually framing yeah they frame wood. a hallway and then drape it so they line it they sheet it and line it so it's it got fancy drape and it's pretty and whatever. They they make a they construct a separate hallway within the hallway <laughs> so that she doesn't have to look at anybody on the way by. So you see some weird stuff like that. She's trying uh, to keep her focus on. Yeah, yeah, another one that was weird. Paul McCartney when he came through. So Paul McCartney is uh, is vegan and. Uh, and 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 good for him. I have no problem with people being vegan. I have a lot of friends that maintain a, a vegan diet or vegetarian diet. But as soon as you start forcing that on other people, then I got a problem. For example, Paul McCartney. If anybody on Paul's crew gets caught 
eating anything that isn't vegan. They're fired and sent home. So you're forcing them to eat a diet that they may not have any knowledge about. So if you don't, I have no problem with people maintaining a vegan diet, of course, but it, it's a lot of work. If you don't, if you're not passionate about it and you don't know your stuff, it's really easy to have deficiencies on that diet. So if you're forcing somebody into that diet that doesn't have a desire or knowledge about that diet, they're going to be not good. Yeah, right. And then if that person's job is to climb on a truss 60 feet in the air every day and their nutrition is not not on point and it's not what they're used to. What's going to happen? <laughs> That's where I have a problem with it. Yeah. So you can you can you can say, all right, you know, I'm feeding you guys. I'm supplying all all the food that was supplied is vegan for the crew. Cool. Great. But if somebody wants to go out and get a cheeseburger, they do it on their own time. Go get it. Sure. But if you're going to fire them for it, then come on, bro. When you see that, those little things in the entertainment industry, you get to kind of see like the who's who and who's good and who's not good to work for. Yeah. Well, Cher's top dog. Cher's at the top, in yeah. my opinion. Cher, another good one. Pink is phenomenal. Fogarty, John Fogarty, great. We've had lots of tours with phenomenal performers. We just set up for AEW Wrestling, and I'd be very happy to work with them again. They were great to work with. Everybody, the wrestling, wrestling in general, very cool. The performers are all super humble, super great. Uh, for AEW, they they are throwing all kinds of money at that tour, so they do everything right where they're like, you know what? All of rehearsals, I want standby riggers in case something goes wrong. We need a proper standby call, X, Y, you know, and they're all getting fed all day. No problem. It's just, it's four extra bodies. We don't care. Feed them. So I'm sitting, eating next to Chris Jericho. And I, I wasn't huge on wrestling growing up, but I know who Chris Jericho is. And yeah, some can, of these bigger names. You can still be names. starstruck even if you yeah, weren't oh, into exactly. it. Exactly. So all of a sudden I'm watching him walk by. That's fucking Chris Jericho. <laughs> Holy shit. And he sits at the table next to us. I'm like, what the, what the hell, dude? We're, we're sharing lunch. That's you, nostalgia right there. Yeah, and you're trying to keep your jaw off the floor and just mind your own business. But <laughs> you never know. I've got a few of those kinds of stories where, like, Travis Pastrana, same thing. I've always been a big fan of Travis Pastrana growing up. Uh, he He's, for those that don't know, the... Um, he kind of leads, he was the motocross champion of the world. And then now extreme sports all around champion of the, like he's, he leads night. He started nitro circus and now he's a rally car driver cause his body's falling apart and everything he's done. He's done everything. And so when nitro circus came through and we did all the setup for it and then we're eating lunch and I'm standing next to somebody in the lunch line and I'm looking at the soup and i can't pronounce what it is and i have no idea what it is it's, it's like a stew but it, the name on it was I, I couldn't figure it out and i noticed somebody was beside me but i didn't look and i just hey man do you know what this is and i look over and it's travis pastrana right next to me like my childhood hero standing right beside me and i guess my crew had seen that travis was standing next to me and they're kind of giving each other elbows going look 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 he has no idea. He has no idea. He has no idea. Here it comes. And I look over and I'm completely starstruck. It's just, 
And and Trav is a super humble guy. He's like, yeah, I don't know, man. It's always really good though, so I'm gonna eat it. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, me too, me too. You're awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Just totally starstruck. So you try to maintain your cool then? Oh, <laughs> man, it, there was no, there was no cool. <laughs> hey, at least you admit it. At least you admit oh, there was it. no cool. Yeah. There was no cool. A lot of my crew has never really seen me in a non-professional light like that before. So, and they're all just dying. Right, they're rolling on the floor, and I'm sitting there with my jaw <laughs> on the floor. You see that you are human, then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just blushed and everything. It was great. Oh, that's legit. Hey, so is there anything I haven't asked you? I don't know, man. I can I can talk rigging for days. I can talk rigging for days and days. So I what, don't know. What are all the roles on the crew? Oh, there's so many. So all the way, let's go ceiling to floor. You've got a high steel rigger. You've got a puller that works with them and pulls their points for them. Then you've got ground riggers, um, which are, you know, build the bridles and then tie onto them for the upriggers and send them up. You've got head rigger, which is me. You've got truck loaders, forklift operators, stage hands, carps, which are in charge of building set pieces and set designs what, you've got carp yeah like as in carpenter oh i got you. so yeah. you've got carps you've got lighting hands which put the lights on the trusses you've got audio hands that put the speaker cabinets together you've got pushers that just push all the boxes around to where they need to need to be you've got uh there's probably 30 different positions really <laughs> but, but there's, there's just there's also people that just push things yeah, yeah. The majority of the people. So on a big show like let's go wrestling. Wrestling. There's there's a hundred people in the in the building on the floor. There's maybe twenty upriggers and let's say sixty of them of those hundred. Probably sixty of them are pushers. There's pushing boxes where they need to go. Pushing staging and trusses and motors and everything. Pushing it all where it needs to go. How difficult is it to push these things? Sometimes they're pretty heavy. Sometimes you've got like a cart that's got 6,000 pounds on it. So you need five people pushing it up and down ramps or... Oh, you're going up and down ramps. It can be. If you have a ramp on the truck, it's faster than having a forklift, picking up, putting down, backing up, picking up, putting down, backing up. Whereas if you've got a ramp out the back, zoom, 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 it all comes out, right? right so it's more efficient. Yeah. Way faster. But if it's heavy, then you can't. So... Um, yeah, so 60 pushers out of a hundred people on the floor is about accurate. And they just, they're pushing everything around where it needs to go. That's their only role. Yep. <laughs> Show up, push boxes for a few hours, go home, come back tonight and push them around again. Really? They're just there for a setup and then tear down? Yep. If you weren't head rigging, what's your top job you'd want to do? Climbing. Yeah. Yeah. Lead up rigger. Up rigging is... That's my jam. So that's different from the high steel rigger? No, it's the same thing. That's okay. the same thing. So as the head rigger, I'm on the floor most of the time because I'm doing the math. And then I'm I'm making sure that everything is correct. It goes up and the high riggers pull it up and they build it. And then I've got to check it to make sure that it hit the mark. And if it didn't, then I've got to adjust it to make sure that it does hit the mark. And I can't do that from in the air because the tour guy's not in the air. So the tour rigger's on the floor and I'm working with him all day or her, making sure that they're happy with where my math lines up. Yeah. What's the biggest lesson you've learned from being head rigger? Stay humble. Stay patient. And 
probably that no matter what job you do in the world, 80% of your job is working with, is how well you work with others and how you treat people. And 20% is the actual work. So it's how you make people feel that matters. Yeah. The vast majority of my job, I do a lot of work, but the vast majority of my job is all dependent on how my communication skills are. So how I talk to people, how I make the tour feel in the morning. If my first conversation with the tour in the morning doesn't go well, that can change the whole day very quickly. So things get, things change a lot depending on how they're feeling. You do not want to be at odds with anybody in my industry. Yeah. Yeah. On a show day, you want everybody all smiles. Same team, same sheet of music. Yep. Yep. So it's 80% people pleasing and 20% work. (laughs) 20% how good you are at the job and 80% how well you communicate with everybody. When'd you learn that? Later than I should (laughs) have. So I've been doing this for 15 years. I'd say that lesson became very prominent at about the five-year mark. What was the moment? The head rigger that taught me pretty much everything that I know now, he uh, he passed away. Um, it was a fairly tragic death. He was on, was on his way to work, uh, and he, it was a car accident. When he passed away, then there's a big void that needed to be filled there because he was the head rigger for the building since construction so since 89 this guy was at every single show every single event in that building that ever took place for 20 30 yeah almost 30 years right so there was a big void that needed to get filled and when i started taking over into that position then that's when i learned that it's it's not how good you are because i was very good at, at rigging i was very good at it climbing very fast very efficient very skilled at it but that's kind of when i learned that it doesn't matter how good you are what matters most is how good you are at talking to people and how how well you communicate because you can be the best in the world but you're only one person so if you're at odds with your team or if you're not a good leader it doesn't matter how good you are <laughs> right you really kind of learned that lesson that if you want to go fast, go alone. Or if you want to go far, go together. Go together. Yeah, that's exactly right, man. <laughs> that rings so true. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. What well, should we call it? Sure, man. Let's call it.